Hello, and welcome to Nevermind the Pain Points, a podcast dedicated to helping you unlock your business challenges. Pulling on our network of clients, partners, experienced employees, and industry experts, we wanted to share with you our views and opinions on common business challenges. As a consulting firm that deals with these pain points on a daily basis, we thought we were well-placed to give insights on addressing these challenges. On today's episode, Swinton Insurance's Head of Direct Marketing and CRM, Anthony McLaughlin, joins Clarissa's CX Specialists, Tom Carpenter and Lawrence Alfred, in discussing the challenges of customer experience transformation in the insurance industry. Enjoy the episode. Uh, hello and welcome to the Clarissa's podcast series. My name is Tom Carpenter, a customer transformation aficionado here at Clarissa's. And uh, I'm Lawrence Alfred, and I'm one of the experienced CX and customer journey mapping consultants at Clarisys. Uh, we are here with Anthony McLaughlin, Senior Marketing and CRM Manager. And today we'll be discussing how the insurance market and customer expectations have shifted over the last few years, and how uh, Anthony has used customer journey mapping and customer experience transformation recommendations uh, in his work over the last uh, couple of years. So, Ant, do you want to give us an introduction about yourself and your career background? Yeah, sure. I've been in marketing for coming up to 25 years now. I started off in uh, classically trained direct marketing. So I worked in home shopping where data was king. And then for the past 10 or 12 years, I've worked in the FS space. Just for our listeners who are uh, less au fait with marketing, what do you mean by direct marketing? What did that used to mean back in the day? Well, hopefully it still means today that you use targeted data to identify those customers, most specifically for acquisition. So channels such as direct mail, email, SMS, back in the day, telemarketing, uh, which has sadly seen its day probably. Yeah, I'm sure not too many people are sad about that. No, <laughs> no, uh, unless you work in PPI, of course. <laughs> so the benefit of, of direct marketing is that um, you know from your response the, the performance of that activity, so easily measured. Um, you can apply tracking techniques and you've also got the beauty of easily implementing test and control as well in, in direct marketing. So for me, it gives you that much more control and granularity than, say, normal above the line spend. Is there a big uh, focus on direct marketing at Swinton, would you say? We have traditionally done a lot in the direct marketing space and part of that is where we play in terms of customer segments. Mm -hmm. We find we're slightly more uh, stronger in those segments that might respond to to classic uh, direct marketing and it's a virtuous circle to be honest. But at the same time with the onset of digital and and web uh, we're very strong in those areas today as well. So you do you still do direct marketing in your current role now, but more expanded? Yeah. Remote. Yeah, sure. We, as I say, have a, a strong digital focus. Use digital channels a lot, alongside the ubiquitous price comparison sites. Of course. Um, which we we are present on, and they how shall I put it? The price comparison sites are a difficult drug to wean yourself off if you're a, uh, an insurer. And do you do any particular kind of marketing alongside some of the um, comparison sites? Or how do, you, how do you shift your marketing to be able to deal with that? Or can't you? Really, you're, you're quite hamstrung mm. uh, with what you can do with the price comparison site. So you have to find activity that complements the price comparison sites as a, as a channel. I'm sure every insurer out there would, would prefer to write a business direct 
rather than through course, the yeah. uh, the price comparison sites. Um, yes, there's a, an obvious customer benefit in terms of choice and price competition. Uh, but of course, the things that, that customers don't see is that every time an insurance policy is written through those price comparison sites, the insurers pay them a fee and that fee has to go somewhere and typically it could actually drive price inflation. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, and something which probably customers don't realise yeah. when we're looking at that. Um, so what's your exposure to customer experience transformation in your kind of last 10 years or so of your role? What have you done? So Swinton, as a business specifically, has uh, has shifted its operating model quite significantly, certainly over the past 10 years. So 10 years ago, Swinton had over 500 high street branches spread all across the UK. Uh, and that wasn't unusual in terms of insurance. With the onset of the web, uh, price comparison sites in particular, there's been a, a, a huge shift, a significant change in the way people buy insurance. And that means that as a customer experience for a Swinton customer, that, that journey has changed completely. We were well known for providing effectively local face-to-face -face service Typically, a, a high proportion of our customers would have gone into a branch and purchased the CSA, helping that customer, may have known them to recognise and say hello to. Today, we have uh, less than 50 branches. Over 65% of our new business sales are from a digital source and the rest are through the telephone. So in terms of customer experience, it, it's, it's taken a, a quantum leap, really moving from traditional face-to-face branch-based to, -face branch -based to um, trying to be as, as frictionless, as low-cost as possible, but still maintaining a, a certain level of service, of course. Sure, and it's often quite difficult to do kind of operating model, the way in which you organise your organisation changes and also improve the customer experience or have that not detriment the customer experience. So how have you... Have you found any negative effects of changing the operating model on customers' perception of, of Swinton? Yeah, we, we, we've had a real dilemma, certainly over the, the past five years. Ultimately now, for the majority of people, insurance is a, a commodity they're purchasing. They want that to be as, as frictionless as possible. However, we still have a large segment of customers that have been with us um, for five, ten years plus and they expect a certain level of service. From a cost-based point of view, it's difficult to keep uh, servicing those customers in, in the way they're used to, and it has been a real challenge to create a, a, a tailored approach based on uh, customer segmentation. Uh, granted, you have to make some very brave decisions that may not always be in favour of customer service, but in the pace at which the industry has changed, and the way margins are pushed in insurance these days, you have to take those decisions with a view on, on sustaining the future for the business. So you just touched on there around um, tailoring the experience of different customer segments. So how have you approached that generally? Yeah, uh, I mentioned tenure, and, and tenure is an absolute key, uh, not just for Swinton, but I'm sure for all insurers. The, the level of churn that's in the market now, driven by the price comparison sites, means that you will typically have a, um, a much more transitory group of customers 
and those that are in their first year of business you will find have a much lower retention rate and you've got to work really hard to to keep those guys sticking around because their behavior and it's supported by price comparison site media spend is to to look around um, for better prices at renewal every year which is entirely the right thing to do so in terms of segmentation tenure as i say is is key and source or, or channel of new business so we will find significant differences in retention rates from those customers that have a completely online purchase journey versus those that maybe have, have called into the call center that makes a big difference and also payment type so customers who may uh, pay in full for a product again will display different characteristics to those that um, might pay by direct debit and require that that monthly payment scheme I, I like how you've taken more of a kind of data-driven approach to the personas there by working out what they're actually doing I think a lot of organizations are in danger of drawing a nice kind of description of somebody that sounds good on paper but actually that idealized persona is actually quite rare so i think it's good you're talking from more of a um what how the customer is interacting you and tailoring it from that perspective i think you're absolutely right it's it's so easy as uh marketeers to to sit there and come up with your your dream segment and their dream characteristics but actually when when you do look at the data and the empirical evidence it's obvious that there's there's other factors at, at play not necessarily that individual's media consumption or their geography or, or lifestyle so yeah for me that's where direct marketing really complements the the customer journey the crm approach um, because it is fundamentally based on uh, data to to give you the the segments that you then need to work out how best to serve really so you just pick another point around um the way in which you market with customers perhaps the way in which you communicate with customers is that slightly different for different types of customers like tenure and those sorts of things yeah definitely so customers at point of sale can choose whether they would prefer to have a digital channel of communication uh, mainly email versus print and post a regulation came in in october last year called the idd uh, which means now we are obliged to offer customers a, a print or postal route, which um, in today's uh, market might might shock a few people. And we have seen that where we previously were able to effectively automatically opt in online customers for a, a digital communication channel, around 15-20% of those might be choosing post. So again, that just shows that it's not just down to how we want to, to play it. Customer choice does does play into that. But by the nature of that natural split, we find that the usage of our uh, secure online portal amongst the, the digitally savvy customers is, is obviously far higher. Um, it gives us a much lower channel cost to serve. Uh, which is which is good for us and the benefit to the customer is they have 24-hour access to their documents security and far more rapid communication because an email will literally drop into their inbox you know as soon as that that transaction that change that renewal has taken place whereas our our postal preference customers higher cost to serve um, less responsive to digital and have a preference for using the telephone as well. So again, not 24-hour access. 
what approaches have you taken really to um, get those customers who might find it a little bit more tricky to go onto portals? Um, perhaps some might be a little bit more old school. Have you found anything that's working in terms of getting them towards perhaps more cost saving channels for Swinton? Or? Yeah, funnily enough, it's it, there's some old style techniques that that seem to be working. So we've we've not pushed this massively hard yet, although it, it is a, a key KPI for for us uh, both as marketers and as a business going forward. Is that that penetration of usage of the portal? So uh, a recent switch campaign asking those customers who have a postal channel preference, but we know have an email address. A simple prize draw to incentivize those customers to switch has proved in incredibly popular and we'll continue to, to look at ways to incentivize that, that switching behavior because we do feel that the big challenge is, is just that inertia and getting customers to register. Once they're registered, we, we think it all will feel natural. Um, it's not particularly complex. They will see the benefit of going into the portal, having the documents there, not needing to, to worry about paper. But yeah, the, the challenge is, is getting people to go onto that, that My Account portal for the, the first time. Sometimes it's the simplest things there as well. So yeah, just a prize draw, for example, is making a big difference. I think it's quite common in customer experience transformation projects to think you have to completely rethink the way in which you interact with your customers, which firstly is going to be turbulent for them, but also is going to cost a lot of money and take a lot of time. Uh, so the small things are simple things to implement, a good route to go down. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd completely agree. I, I think myths are created around poor customer journeys being the, the root of all evil and, and explaining everything, whereas uh, actually we're all consumers at the end of the day and we can probably bring our own experience into the workplace and your intuition can probably give you a good insight or a starting point to, to tell you what's what's right and, and maybe uh, what needs a bit of focus. I think you're right. It's it's easy to say we need a, a complete rewiring or re-engineering of some systems, whereas actually a few tweaks can get you 90% of the way there at maybe 10 or 20% of the cost, which in today's marketplace is, is where you want to be aiming. Yeah, and I think insurance, you have an amplified, I wouldn't say problem, but challenge with um, where you can differentiate from your competitors. So you've got a very small levers to pull in cost, and you've got some very small drivers in experience, because actually a lot of it is coming down to price, as you say, right? Yeah, uh, and um, I, I'm like a broken record, and I, I do believe, and all the research you know, supports this, that, that insurance is, is typically, for the average person in the street, 90% of the buying decision is is on price so if you take that into account you know service and customer experience you might say might make up the other 10 percent so instantly you know what you can win from from re-engineering a customer journey may not pay back so yes you can't you can't just ignore customer service and and uh, that that journey but at the same time i don't think it's it's not the silver bullet certainly in in the insurance market that it might be in in other areas of business but a lot of people uh, seem to seem to forget that i think in in insurance it's too easy to to point the finger at service and systems and processes and and believe that's the reason for for maybe underperformance so price is a massive factor and as you mentioned because of the 
massively competitive market. Um, what I find interesting, I think within the industry generally, but also just relating it to whether Swinton have considered this, is there any form of consideration of the products and services, which is the insurance products which are offered by Swinton, so finding ways perhaps to differentiate those products to competitors so that there's less competition of price? Is there, has there been kind of any thought around that, do you think, or...? Yes, Swinton as a, a a broker need to need to work with our insurance partners to to generate new products. So we we're probably slightly more limited than maybe if we were generating those products ourselves. However, we are talking about insurance. Don't think there's necessarily one more insurance product that the world is desperate for. <laughs> uh, but if anyone knows what it is, let me know. Insure your eyebrows. Insure you your eyebrows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Product development is is obviously a, an important area for mm-hmm. for us, but I would say we we definite market followers as opposed to kind of innovators. An interesting case study, I guess, is is telematics. So the black boxes, um, you know, five six years ago, it was the the bandwagon to jump on. It was going to to change how insurance worked particularly for young drivers over the past 12 to 18 months we've probably seen a move away from from telematics it wasn't having the impact uh, insurers thought it would there's uh, logistical issues poor take-up rate post-purchase people don't realize you've got to take the car to the garage necessarily versus the app approach which again uh, you know you've you've seen some some big players try to go with but probably uh, have pulled back on those in the past uh, 12 months. So I think telematics technology will have a place, and it it, it will it will diffuse through insurance, but probably not with the, at the rate that we expected. Yeah, and you start to get into the how much data do you have on me, Big Brothers watching you kind of dilemmas which we get with like big tech companies as well, there, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's interesting. The, the whole concept around products complementing loyalty as well in the insurance space. So a directive came out last year, which was um, discriminatory pricing, where the FCA were focused on insurers artificially inflating the prices for longer tenure customers, loyal customers. This Is, is this the policy as well of being transparent with your renewal price? So you show what the price was before and what the increase is as well? Yeah, so, so renewal transparency came in 18 months ago now I think this this was different about discriminatory pricing between new business and renewal prices we talked a little bit about this before but have you adapted the way you positioned Swinton or your communication style to adjust for the fact that people are starting to use price comparison sites more sounds like you wouldn't intentionally be directing people towards those sites but you obviously have to acknowledge them in some ways you think that has changed your communication style at all i would say we we're far more cognizant of the options available to to customers you know renewal time those 30 days ahead of uh the the point of renewal is is absolutely crucial the Ownership of data is a um, key tool in that space in that period for both the insurer and the price comparison sites. We'll be aware that people that have gone through those price comparison sites are, are being talked to and encouraged to go back on there. Transparency rules around providing last year's price is also key to that. So from those points of view, I would say we are aware of what we need to do at renewal time. And we're constantly testing the most optimal times of, of contacting people, the best channels to, to use, the best combination. 
of channels. That's key for us. We do try to do digital first. So so those email communications, combining those with uh, mobile technology as well is, uh, is something that we're trying to push towards. Yeah, at the same time being um, aware that not everyone's going to adopt those channels. As I said, Swinton have been around for 60 plus years. We, we're not a business that's, um, that's set up online five years ago and have got 98% of customers have come through us digitally. You know, we're probably 50-50 split. So it's getting the balance right and getting your, your comms uh, communications correct for those, those relevant customers really. It's an interesting one. So do you think that the actual method and the time of communication actually has an, a genuine impact on whether people, you know, renew or stick with you because of how prominent you know, aggregators are, because of their propensity to look around at this point in time? So do you think yeah. it actually has a material impact? Yeah, it, it really does have a, a material impact. And certainly the past uh, 12 months, we've we've done an awful lot of work understanding and identifying what what the value of each of those communications is to different cohorts of customers. And we, we've had some quite stark results that sometimes confirmed what we believed and other times completely scotched uh, what, what our gut feel was. One example for customers that are required to pay in full, required to proactively contact Swinton at renewal time to say, yes, I'm happy with my renewal price and, and purchase. We have a, a high penetration of, of those customers that prefer a post at the moment as opposed to, to digital. And if those customers haven't proactively renewed with Swinton with seven to 10 days to go, we'll send them a, a reminder in the post. So that has a, a financial cost associated to it. For a single single amount may not seem a lot, but when you multiply it by say half a million customers, it's significant. So we wanted to understand the value of that second postal reminder. And it was something that we didn't send to customers that had an email preference. So we wanted to understand, is there benefit in sending those customers a postal reminder? Will that really hit home with them because there's something landing on their doormat as opposed to in their inbox? So we did a simple test. We removed that reminder from a a proportion of our postal preference customers and the uh, negative impact on retention was almost but not quite double figures. And we added in that postal reminder to a segment of email preference customers um, and it had no material impact on the behaviour of those customers. So just that simple test gave us some really, really strong learnings and it was also a message that was a reminder to say, just a minute, you just can't go headlong, move into solely digital because it looks great on paper don't leave the customer behind don't forget the customer in in these changes that you're making and that and that was quite a stark and strong message actually and it's understand your customer isn't it like you're clearly very aware that a large proportion or a proportion of your customers do prefer the branches and the post votes the postal sorry, reminders and just removing that completely you already understand would have an impact yeah so yeah, I think incredibly important to consider the customer, although actually some of your drivers might be around costs, you're still incredibly aware that there's a customer impact or retention impact on that. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And I think businesses, certainly in today's market, have a a real focus on, on cost and cost to serve. And I, I often draw parallels with people going into supermarkets today and being effectively forced to use the self-serve 
cash registers. I don't think necessarily everybody that uses them, it's their preferred choice. You don't think people enjoy being reminded to remove things from the bagging area? <laughs> yeah, <nice. laughs> well, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just checking that I am 18. <laughs> um, but... But yeah, I mean that those you know the, these people are smart people at the big supermarkets, and and they've realised that you can introduce an element of of push onto consumer behaviour without it necessarily truly detrimenting um, the the figures. You know, I hate using those things, but if it's my only option, um, I'm going to carry on using them. And if I've used them once, I'm more likely to use it again. And I think that's that probably is where uh, a lot of industries are at today in terms of balancing customer expectation and customer experience with um, with profitability and, and the bottom line and, and cost to serve. So we're in a slightly more luxurious position than yourselves in the supermarkets at the end of my road, so I don't really have a choice, whereas insurance, you've got all realms of choice at my fingertips. So yeah, no, <laughs> totally. Got life a little easier than you, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to talking about um, customer journey uh, mapping and how you identified some of those initiatives. Um, for our listeners, we'll just give a quick summary of the work which we have done together with you to put in some context, uh, and then we'll we'll go into some deeper questions. I suppose the, the aim of what we were trying to do was uh, to understand Swinton's customer journey uh, and to map it and understand it as holistically as possible. So to look at it from a few different lenses. So what is the data telling us? How are the front office and back office interacting or operating and how does that interact with customers? Uh, and we actually also um, were able to speak to some customers themselves to try and understand it from, from the horse's mouth, as it were. So really to understand and map the, the customer journey um, as in-depth and broadly as possible, to be able to find um, both effective and perhaps less effective interactions with customers, um, which would then form the basis of our uh, improvement initiatives or recommendations. Um, and we tried, where possible, to, to link that to some form of financial benefit or, or indeed non-financial benefit, really. So that was kind of the aim and the main outcomes, really, from, from the, the piece of work we did. And we focused on two specific areas of the journey initially, didn't we? Which were cancellations and renewals. I say too specific, but that's a large element of... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you've probably nailed about 75% of our, our entire interaction with the customer there. But um... I think, Lawrence, you've touched on it there. Something which we did was to try to go talk to the people in some of the branches and get a bit of an understanding of how your staff in the branches were feeling about the perception and they voiced a lot of the things you've been saying already which was we have we have people that come in who want to keep coming in and it's it's obviously going to be um, a big impact to them to close those branches so you could immediately see that you knew we could evidence that those customers were going to be upset by the closure of these branches i think ultimately obviously you're aware that that was something that from a cost perspective had to happen yeah um but at least then there's an awareness of what the customer how the customer is going to perceive that and what's going to yeah. happen so at least you're making that informed decision something which we tried to do as well was remove the uh the myths which you were saying before coming from individuals within an organization which uh it it's difficult to do, but the way you alluded to this already, I guess, is if you've got the data or the customer opinions to back that up, then it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. So you already had a user a kind of focus group or a kind of customer surveying process set up where you could ask customers certain questions. Um, so, for example, we used that to, uh, to query whether um, some of those assumptions were true or not to validate what the customers were saying. 
Unfortunately, the one that we knew was true was around price, but we did try to uh, compartmentalize that one. Had you done customer journey mapping work before with other organizations or when you worked with us that kind of first time you'd done it? Yeah, it was certainly the first time we'd we'd done it with a specific focus with with you guys. We knew there was a an obvious gap in in the business around documenting and illustrating the journey. I think there was plenty of people that could probably verbally describe what happened from first contact through to through to renewal, you know, the full life cycle really. But we didn't have it uh, down on paper and that meant that if you don't have it set in stone, and as we were saying, it's it's easy to people to have their their own view, uh, Chinese whispers, urban myths around the whole thing. So it's not like it was, you know, it wasn't the the hardest thing to do, but it was just a case of getting it done. And I think once once you guys came on board, it gave us the momentum and the manpower to 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 do that and you know the the stuff we came up with again it, it wasn't rocket science but it does just help people identify those journey points and and where potentially things might be going wrong or where things are going well as well okay so a tip to anyone listening would be get it written down try to take away the opinions or yeah. anything which is an unjustified myth maybe yeah. and get evidence from the customers of what's really happening. Yeah, and I think you alluded to it at the start of, of this section, but it was absolutely vital that there, there was a good cross-section of, of people from across the organisation that, that were involved. Customer journey mapping probably has been done by different departments at different times, but unless it is through the line, for want of a better word, and it, if it needs to be collaborative and it needs to bring those those different lenses from the customer point of view, the, the CSA, the people that are dealing with the customers, right up to the top and the operational and the back office people, and I think that's what went really well from a, a Clarice's point of view, for us anyway. Okay, I think something which also we were able to help from an external perspective was you had data and MI which was telling you a certain thing, but why that thing was happening was, again, very opinionated. Yeah. So we were able to try to relate the two things together and provide a, this data is telling you at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being brutally honest, it's always it's always slightly better if you're able to bring in an external third party to, to back up some of those um, those thoughts. And again, that that's what went works well for us. You know, you were able to understand our point of view, but, but challenge us on a few things as well, which was good. And I just think the way you went about putting those workshops together, etc., Again, not rocket science, but it, it worked really well um, to get that over the line for us. Have you uh, been in many workshops in your career here before? Was that one, a, thing? One, a, one or two, probably. Maybe not quite as um, as interactive. As, what do you, um, what do you say do you think has made some of those workshops you've been in better than others? What makes a good workshop in your book? Well, I mean, engagement, basically. It's it's absolutely vital that people are, are engaged and and actually know what they're there for. You know, I'm a big fan of getting a free sandwich at a workshop. You know, I'm easily pleased, easily bought. But um, I, I think the free sandwiches, along with the clear focus on what we were focusing on, it really helped. And, you know, we were never going to get any resistance because everyone's got their own opinion. 
Um, and if you're asking people, what do you think we can do to make things better? You know, you, you're always going to get uh, plenty of uh, feedback and interaction. It's being able to kind of distill those down into some meaningful outputs, which maybe hadn't happened before and that gave us some uh, some real value. Yeah, and I remember our first few days, uh, the bombardment of internal members of staff here um, coming to us with what were really good ideas, honestly, yeah. really genuine ideas. Uh, but we really wanted to get out and talk to customers and yeah. look at the insights and get out to the, the branches and talk to the call center uh, staff about what people were really saying. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things which is quite difficult to fight. But, yeah, we kind of plowed on with um, with talking to the customers and eventually that paid dividends and yeah. showing yeah. What, what was being said. Yeah, just picking up on, on, on the outputs of the, of the workshops and uh, the actual end outputs, which were those those improvement recommendations. Um, yeah, so I, I remember a big focus of those was to, to identify quick wins, things yeah. that we can do within yeah. the next X amount of weeks and months and those sorts of things. Um, and that's kind of how we structured the, the recommendations. Was that was that well received? Did you, did you feel that people gravitated towards that or did they was the desire to have more kind of long-term big program changes yeah I, th- I think the output was was very well received for all those reasons we've we've alluded to the fact they were bite-sized chunks shall we we call them and, and each one was actionable on its own merits yeah you're always going to get dependencies and, and interactions but I, I think we delivered in a a, a useful set of, of recommendations that didn't go over kind of 40 pages, you know. They, they were, you know, six or seven sensible ones that people could easily understand and, and digest. And, you know, the good news is that we probably delivered on, I'd say, five of the seven already with actual um, evidence and, and measurable results on the back of it. Because we're in the space of, you know, we, we were trying to understand what was driving a high cancellation rate. So the things that, that we did have we've been able to evidence through analysis and, and MI. I'm not going to say it's it's all happened off the back of, of the work we did, but it certainly helped support the, the business cases or, or the need for some of those changes. There's been a, a you know a cost out aspect to some of it as well, but all those things help. If you were to give advice to... <laughs> Anyone trying to do this sort of exercise themselves, what do you think the biggest, most effective things to pick out of an exercise like this would have been? For me, the most effective thing is definitely getting feedback from across the organisation. Having worked with a number of different consultancies in my time in, in FS, it does feel that some of those guys will will come in and they've almost decided what they want to do pretty much before they start working with you and they want to impose their quickly made recommendations i don't think that's the right way to go about it i think they activate uh higher up the the hierarchy very well but probably don't uh, don't engage with with people that are real face-to-face with with the customer which is a shame because obviously you guys and well you particularly but the people on the ground there are the people you really know aren't they yeah and, and they're the ones that are desperate to be heard Really, you know, they're, they're the ones at, at the coalface that are dealing with the customer day to day. And those guys probably aren't going to be thinking, you know, bigger picture, balance sheet, 
profit and loss, but it's a great customer experience for them, makes their lives easier because they're not dealing with unhappy customers or, you know, problematic processes. So so they're they're the ones that really know, uh, you know, which widgets are working and which ones aren't. And you could feel the passion from them when we that were there. They were excited to be having someone they could talk to about it. Uh, yeah. Let like, yeah, their problems yeah. off their chest. But it really helped us and understand what was going on yeah. on the ground. Um if you were if you were to give any advice to anyone trying to do customer experience transformation? I mean, obviously your experience is in FS, so yeah. I guess in that area, but yeah. anything? Yeah, I think one thing I try to remind others of is that you shouldn't be aiming to give a customer the perfect experience at every stage of that, that journey it's got to be relevant to your marketplace and the product you're selling. So again, I'll I'll reference the self-serve tills in Tesco and Sainsbury's and in insurance, customers are price focused and customers will actually put up with, let's say, a non-perfect journey in some areas. Now, I'm I'm not advocating that everyone drops any any idea of, of service at all. You've just got to be got to be realistic. Unless you have carved yourself out a perfect niche in the market and you are able to attract those customers that are completely prices is no issue, you have got to have an eye on balancing, you know, your your profit and loss with with customer experience and you've got to make some brave decisions at, at sometimes and other times you've you've really got to put the customer at the heart of, of what you do and I think that there's a difference you can always you can always put the customer at the heart of, of what you do but you don't have to give guilt edged world-class service at, at every point because you'll very quickly find that you've got no cash left <laughs> expensive yeah. undertaking yeah yeah it's an interesting insight really not to um romanticize too much about the most ideal experience really when there's commercial reality certainly in insurance where it's a really competitive yeah market, yeah really. super competitive yeah mm. yeah well, again, an, another kind of market example is if, uh, as a customer, you, you go onto an insurance website, so you go directly to those guys' websites, and you can all do this. You know, everyone typically buys at least one form of insurance a year, if not two. I'm getting my phone out ready to buy now. Yeah, so just look for the, the prominence of phone numbers on, on those websites. Swinton are, are still one of a minority of, uh, of insurance providers that we make phone numbers obvious it's easy for the customer to interact with us but if you're outside of the purchase cycle say you want to make a change to your insurance you know a lot of people will typically go to that insurer's website and think oh, I'll just find the number and give them a ring good luck with trying to do that these days with a lot of insurers and again think about that from the the customer experience point of view maybe it's my mid 40s sort of I've I've grown up with being able to talk to people on the telephone and get things sorted quickly but um you don't look a day over 21 oh, you're a smooth talking <laughs> devil yeah, but again, that that's just another illustration of how organisations in a in a commoditized price driven business are having to to change their approach to cost to serve to to customer experience um, with an eye on on the bottom line. As as I said before, you know we're all consumers, and just run that test against uh, how you might feel, how say your parents might feel, and you, you probably won't go too far wrong 
to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think you made made the point earlier in terms of it's not Harvey Nichols or it's not John Lewis where the experience is yeah. king, really. Oh, you know where I shot, Florence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Primark. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, as point you made around kind of simple and effective, frictionless. Yeah, less is more kind of kind of thing. So yeah. it's interesting. Well, Ant, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and a pleasure working with you previously. Thank you so much for uh, giving our listeners insight into into your world and to the work we did with you. Thank you. I've uh, I've really enjoyed it. So uh, thanks for the chat. Cheers, Ant. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Nevermind the Pain Points. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcasting app or site. We would love your feedback, so please leave a review or drop us an email at podcast at And for more information about us, visit our website, clarisys.com. <laughs>